well, hey, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers at Regency. I just wanted to thank you for checking out this message. We're praying that God uses this message to draw your heart closer to Him. If you're ever in the Mobile area, we want to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. If you'd like to find out more information about Regency or to check out some other resources, visit our website at regencycc.org. from a few years ago over in the United Kingdom that found out that uh, kids ages four and under on average ask somewhere between 70 to 90 questions a day. That's well over 500 questions a week. And if you're a parent of a young child this morning, you might be thinking, well, my kid is definitely an overachiever. I can remember when my kids were little, they were like sponges soaking up that information. Sometimes I, I wish they had been a little less spongy because of the abundance of questions. I get home from work and Haley would say, it's your turn to answer all of their questions. And kids ask good questions like, why does it rain? How do birds fly? Why do I have to eat vegetables? Sometimes they ask really difficult questions like, why do people die? How are babies made? And it's usually at that point that we generally say, go ask your mother. Well, Jesus asked a lot of questions. He loved asking questions because he understood that questions are really the gateway to knowledge and understanding. He asked questions to his followers, to his closest disciples. It was his favorite method of teaching that I can tell. It's known as the Socratic method of teaching where you will ask questions to allow a person to enter into a period of critical thinking so that they can discover the answer for themselves. It's one thing if I just hand you the answer. It's a different situation if you can discover the answer for yourself. And so Jesus asked all kinds of questions. He asked questions to God, His Father, questions that were really difficult, questions that required His audience to really think deeply about what He was asking them about. And He asked a lot of questions over His time on earth Questions that I believe are so powerful and incredibly relevant to us today. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to look at different questions that Jesus asked to his followers over 2,000 years ago. And what I hope you'll find is that his questions still apply to us today. Not only did he ask them then, but he's asking us now. So the first question we're going to look at comes from a scene in Matthew chapter 16. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to join me there. The verses will also be up on the screen. And it says in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, that Jesus and his disciples make their way to this district of Caesarea Philippi. That's an interesting area. It's this ancient uh, Greco-Roman colony. And it, they're inside of the city of Caesarea Philippi, which is located right at the base of Mount Hermon, really close to the Jordan River. You remember the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized? The Israelites crossed the Jordan River in the book of Joshua. There's a lot of significance to this area. Well, in the, the area of Caesarea Philippi, Herod the Great built this temple to honor Caesar Augustus around 19 B.C. And this temple, behind this temple, was a cave. And the cave was for the Greek god Pan that they believed lived there. But the other interesting fact about this cave is they believed, many at this time believed, that that cave was the gateway to the underworld, to the Hadean realm, you know, the place where the dead are, where all the evil spirits dwell. And they believed that right behind this cave, inside this cave, was this gateway to Hades. Well, Jesus, a great question 
poser loved a great object lesson. And we don't know for sure because Matthew doesn't tell us, but my guess is, and I'm speculating here, my guess is as they come into Caesarea Philippi that they're probably walking right past this great temple built to Caesar Augustus, knowing all of the significance that it holds for many of those that lived in that day. And Jesus pauses and he asks his disciples this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's an interesting title that he uses. He's talking about himself when he says, the Son of Man. That title comes from many different places. It's actually the title that Jesus used the most to describe himself. It's really interesting. He never actually verbally says he is the Son of God, though he does say yes when Pilate asks him, are you the Son of God? He actually uses the term Son of Man more than any other term when referring to himself. It dates all the way back to Daniel chapter 2. There's a lot of significance behind the title. But the title basically just means he's the son of, of humanity. He's a human. He's a human being just like you and I. And so he asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He wants to know, what are people saying about me? And their, their response is really interesting. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist, just two chapters before, was beheaded. And Matthew wrote pretty well chronologically through his Gospel. So... They think you're the guy who just recently lost his head. You remember your cousin, John the Baptist, who's dead. Some say you're Elijah. Remember Elijah the prophet, you know, the one that died 850 years ago? Some people think you're him. Others think you're Jeremiah, you know, the guy that died over 570 years ago. Some people think you're him. Or just one of the prophets, you know, who at best died over 400 years ago. Do you catch the theme? They think Jesus is a guy who's come back from the dead, which I find really interesting that after he actually comes back from the dead, many of those don't think he's a dead guy raised anymore, but they don't know what to do about Jesus. They're presented with the question, who do you think Jesus is? He's the talk of the town. Everybody's talking about him. Hey, who do you think this Jesus guy is? I, I don't know, Elijah maybe? Come back from the dead? I Jeremiah, he's just got to be some kind of great prophet. They don't know what to think about Jesus. Well, then Jesus asks another question, and he turns it more personally to his followers, and he says, well, who do you say that I am? This question is personal. He wants to know what, what his closest followers think. And as I read that, I think he wants us to ask the same question as well. Well, Peter gives a, a beautiful response. He says, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. What a powerful response. There's a couple terms he uses that are really interesting. The Christ just simply means the anointed one. It's not Jesus' last name. It's actually his title that is given to him from God himself. It's a title that's got a lot of significance behind it because it dates back to all the promises that God had made in the Old Testament about the one who would come. Some translations, instead of saying, you are the Christ, they say you are the Messiah, the promised one, the one who's going to come and rescue us. Remember all those promises that were made back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the promise that was made to Abraham that through your seed all families of the earth are going to be blessed. You remember the promise that was made to Moses, and I'm going to raise up a prophet like you that's going to lead the people. You remember the promise made to David that your kingdom will endure forever. It will last from generation to generation. All of these promises are packed together in this term, the Christ, the Messiah. 
You see, for Peter and the rest of his disciples, their superheroes were not Batman and Super, Superman. Their superheroes were King David, Moses, Abraham, and the Messiah. The challenge was the Messiah didn't have a face yet. He was just the one that they had heard about growing up. The Messiah is going to rescue us. The Messiah is going to save us. The Messiah is going to restore Israel. They had heard all of these things. They knew the Scriptures back and forth. And they were waiting on the One who would come. And Peter says, You're Him. I believe You're the Messiah. And he also says, The Son of the living God. That's a term that's got a lot underneath it. It should take your mind back to places like Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 where Isaiah reminds us that this child would be born. The one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, Peace. Places like Psalm 2 where God says, You are my Son, whom I am well pleased. You are my Son, who I have begotten. Peter says, You're the Son of God. Not just a, a Gener generic child of God like we all are, but you are the Son, the promised One who would come from God. Jesus praises His confession. He says, great job, Simon. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That's just a really weird way to say Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And Paul's right here. Don't forget where they're standing. They're standing in front of this great temple built to Caesar Augustus. They're standing in front of this temple that just behind it is this cave that they believe that the Greek god Pan lived. And also is this gateway to the underworld, this gateway to Hades. And Jesus says, and the gates of Hades right over there will never prevail against my church. Isn't that awesome? His church, his group of people, this group of people that have been called out of darkness into his wonderful light, this group of people that has become these devoted followers of Jesus, he says the gates of Hades themselves will never prevail. Nothing will stop it. It is a kingdom that will last forever. It will outlast the Roman Empire. It will outlast any empire that will come after that. It will outlast the United States of America. It will outlast any kingdom country or empire that claims authority on this earth, it will outlast them all. And that should give us hope as Christians. Jesus says it's going to endure forever. What a powerful moment. His disciples had to leave kind of pumped up. First off, you're Peter. You got the right answer on the test, right? You're good. You passed it. Secondly, to be reminded what we're doing is really important. I want to go back to that question that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am. I think it's a question that he's asking us today. It's a powerful question. It's a personal question. It's one that you can't simply ignore. You can't just pass over it. Okay? I remember when I was get, when I was in high school, I was getting ready to take the ACT. I was really nervous about taking the ACT. I mean, how do you take a test that covers everything you've ever learned? Well, there's really good ways now, but back then I had no idea. I remember one of my friends told me, well, you can buy this book, and this book will help you do better on this test. Yeah. Next thing I want to do is read a book, right? If I had understood number score on the test versus debt, uh, debt to income ratio later in life, maybe I would have worked a little bit harder on doing better on that test. But since then, one of the things that I have learned is that there's strategies with taking the ACT. You can take these courses, you can pay loads of money, and they'll prepare you in strategies as to how to take the ACT. And one of the strategies is, if you don't know the answer, just guess. 
Wouldn't you like to have that had that opportunity on any test you took? If you don't know the answer, just guess, because on the ACT, you're not punished for getting the answer wrong. It only counts the correct answers. The more correct answers you get, the better your score. So if you guess and you get it right, hey, great job. You're not penalized for a wrong answer. Well, in other parts of the country, they don't take the ACT. They take the SAT. The SAT is a little bit different. It's got a different strategy because you're actually penalized for the wrong answers. And so if you don't know the answer, pass. Just keep moving along. And if you have time at the end of that section, go back and try to figure out the correct answer. But if you don't know, just leave it blank. You're penalized for wrong answers. Well, the question that Jesus is asking us today is not like the SAT. It's not something you can just pass on. You can't say, well, I'll answer it later in life. I'll answer it when things are a little bit more convenient for me. When I get some things figured out and I get some things worked out, I've lived a little bit, that, that's when I'll answer that question. That's when I'll get serious about it. It's not one you can ignore. And it's not a question that somebody else can answer for you. Your mom or dad can't say, well, yeah, they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Their answer doesn't count for you. And you can't say, well, yeah, my parents believe in Jesus. Well, that doesn't matter. It's, it's not what do your parents think about Jesus. It's what do you think about Jesus. Who do you think Jesus is? It's not a question that you can ignore. But the second thing I want to remind you of today is this answer that, that keeps popping up all throughout time, this idea that Jesus was just a really good teacher. It's not a logical answer. I want you to walk with me for a minute. Let's walk through this idea of, is Jesus a, just a really good teacher? Just last year, 2020, a, a poll was taken to find out what people believed about Jesus. In the United States, 52% of Americans, just over half of Americans, believe that Jesus was not the Son of God, but that He was a really good teacher, a really good moral teacher. He taught some really good things. Well, I want to kind of confront that understanding this morning because I don't think you can say Jesus was just a really good teacher because really good teachers don't teach the things that Jesus taught if they're only just good teachers. Only the Son of God could teach the things Jesus taught and they'd be true and they'd be right. Let's remind ourselves of some of the things that Jesus taught. Jesus taught, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He taught, if you want to follow me, take up your cross today. Our equivalent would say, if you want to be a follower, go get your electric chair or go get a syringe and fill it with lethal poison so that it will take you out and carry that around. That's what it takes to follow me. He taught, if you don't love me more than you love your uh, mother or father, wife or husband, son or daughter, you can't be my disciple. I'm just going to tell you, folks, just good teachers don't teach that kind of stuff. Good teachers don't teach their followers to sell everything they have and give it away, except in college where you have to sell everything you have to pay for it. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Good teachers don't teach that. Good teachers don't claim to forgive people of their sins. Because if you claim to forgive somebody of their sin and they believe it and you don't have that authority or ability, then that's a really dirty joke at best. Good teachers don't do that kind of thing. There's this really interesting line from a book written in 1952 by a man named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was actually an atheist until he 
really researched the claims of Jesus and became a Christian. And he wrote many great works. In fact, you might have read some of them or you've seen the movies. If you've seen the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and many of the other books in that series, that's all written by C.S. Lewis. But he's got this work that a lot of people have read that I find really interesting. There's a line from it in his book called Mere Christianity. And he wrote this 70 plus years ago, not, not today, 70 years ago. And here's what he said. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's some strong words from 70 years ago because of the idea that was floating around that Jesus was not the Son of God but was some great moral teacher. And today, over half of Americans still believe the same claim. Here's what I'm going to tell you, church. He's either the Son of God or He is far, far worse than anything we could have ever imagined. But how do you answer the question, who do you say that I am? I believe there's some powerful evidence to answering this question. First off, consider the tomb of Jesus. We know the Romans killed him. It, it's been recorded throughout history. They hung him on a cross. They killed him, and three days later, the tomb was empty. That, that claim that the tomb was empty was actually validated by his closest followers, by his enemies, and by the Roman authorities. There is no denying the fact that the tomb of Jesus was empty. The only question is, why was the tomb empty? Well, it, his opponents said that his body was stolen, yet there was no evidence that that could have or would have happened because we know that there was a gigantic stone rolled in front of the tomb. We know that there were a couple of Roman guards placed in front of that tomb, and we know that that real, little ragtag so, uh, group of bandits known as the disciples of Jesus would have had no ability to overpower those Roman soldiers, much less do that and then roll the stone away. But yet the tomb was empty. We know that his disciples claimed that he actually rose from the dead. So let's walk with that claim for just a moment. It's one thing to claim that he rose from the dead. It's another thing when your life is on the line for that claim. Every one of them except the Apostle John gave up their life, was killed for that audacious claim that the tomb was empty and that Jesus rose from the dead. Every one of them except John. And it's not that John wasn't willing to. It's that they didn't kill him for it. They just exiled him to an island and he wound up dying of natural causes. Yet he still suffered harm. He was still uh, severely persecuted because of the claim. And not one of them ever backed down for the claim. Would you ever die for a lie? It's one thing to kind of push forth a lie, but when your life is on the line, would you die for a lie? I can tell you right now, I will not die for a lie. And none of his disciples ever changed their tomb. But I think there's an even greater piece of evidence, even greater than his closest followers. It's actually a young man that we learn about who's a bright young man. He, he grows up 
studying at the feet of one of the brightest rabbis at that time. He, he was one of the most devoted followers of God who actually believed that Jesus was not the Christ, but was the Antichrist. He believed that what Jesus was doing was wrong, and he made it his personal mission to try to put an end to this whole Jesus movement. He consented to the death of one of the followers of Jesus. It's the first death of a follower of Jesus that we know of, this young man named Stephen, who made the claim that he saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And this young man actually gives the nod for these older men to pick up stones and start throwing them at this young man named Stephen until he dies, all because he claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead. This young man continues on that we know as Saul. He continues on to go on and persecute Christians. He's actually headed to the city of Damascus with letters in hand, arrest warrants in his possession to go throw uh, followers of Jesus in jail. When according to his own account, Jesus appears to him. It's not a dream. It's not an out-of-body experience. He claimed he saw Jesus while traveling to Damascus. And this moment shook his life up so much that he goes from being one of the greatest opponents of Christianity to one of the most devoted followers of Jesus the church has ever seen. He goes from persecuting Christians to getting persecuted for his faith. He's thrown in jail. He's beaten. He's even stoned on one occasion. He's left for dead. He gets shipwrecked. He gets bit by a snake. All of these crazy things happen to him all because of his faith in Jesus that he was once so opposed to. And he even goes so far as to give up his own life because he believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Many know him as the Apostle Paul, who wrote well over half of the New Testament. And I believed if we were to ask the Apostle Paul today, Paul, who do you think Jesus is? I think maybe he would pull out something from one of his letters. One of those letters that he wrote to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, I think we would hear a lot of this language from Paul to answer the question, who do you think Jesus is? He would say this, He is the Son of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or, uh, or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. That's Paul's answer. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. Son of living God. So, I, I ask you the question. Who do you say that Jesus is? The interesting thing is, before today, you've answered that question many times. Maybe not with your mouth, but you've answered it many times with your life. And the other terrifying truth is that some of us have answered that question, who is Jesus? We've answered it, that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but our life has not backed it up. We've said with our mouth, yes, I believe Jesus is the Christ, but our life has not backed up that claim. Here's what I want you to understand. It's vitally important for you to answer that question with your mouth, but it's even more important for you to answer that question with your life. And today you have an opportunity 
to answer that question. Because I believe Jesus is asking us today, who do you say that Jesus is? I remember it was a Sunday night, April the 9th, the year was 2000. We gathered with our church family. A great mentor of mine named Rusty Adair presented a powerful message. And I had made up my mind that today's the day. And at the conclusion of that service, I stepped out into that aisle, that aisle and made my way forward. And my father met me down there. And after the song ended, I stood before the church and my father asked me that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And I confessed on that night, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then I was baptized into Christ. And I wish I could tell you that every moment after that, my life backed up that confession, but it didn't. To confess means to agree. And there were times that my life and my mouth did not agree with each other. My belief and my lifestyle did not match up with each other. That's the beauty of grace. Is that sometimes when we get off and we're not living out that confession, we have an opportunity to start afresh. Today, to confess, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And to live it. To live it today. To live it tomorrow and to live out that confession every day that we have upon this earth. And my prayer for you is that you'll live it out. That if, you, if you've never made that confession with your mouth, you've never confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you've never been baptized into Christ, what better day than today? What better, better moment than right now? He's asking you, who do you say that He is? If you believe that He is the Savior, the Messiah, the One that God sent to rescue us, from our sins, to claim us and to, to save our souls, well then today, won't you give Him your life? If you need to renew your confession to Jesus because you've walked away from it, your life has not matched what you claimed and confessed, won't you make that rededication today? If we can help you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing this song?